Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is Basketball History 101 with Rick Loiza. Welcome back to Basketball History 101. I am your host, Rick Loiza. This is the podcast where we bring to life some of the forgotten stories from basketball history. Now, before we launch into our story for today, I want to make an announcement. The Basketball History 101 podcast is joining the Sports History Network. It's a network of podcasts devoted to the history of sports. The director of the network, my man, Arnie Chapman, reached out to me and invited me to join the group, which I was very happy to do. You can go to sportshistorynetwork.com to find out more about the network and its collection of podcasts. Arnie himself hosts the Football History Dude podcast that focuses on the history of the NFL and American football in general. So go ahead and check it out wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Football History Dude. So, let's get into today's story. The game of basketball is always developing. Since the invention of the game, players and coaches have always been looking for new ways to push the boundaries of the game, trying new techniques or new moves, or sometimes it's a way to exploit the rules for a competitive edge. Basketball is, and always has been, a competitive game. And anything that's competitive is always going to invite creativity and invention because that's how you gain an edge over your competition. You have to find a better or different way of doing something that will provide a path to victory. Like the saying goes, if you are doing the exact same thing as everyone else, then you will be no better than everyone else. So let's take a look at the one-handed jump shot as an example. It was invented as a way to produce a high volume of shots. Up until the 1930s, the two-handed set shot was the proper way to take a shot, but it resulted in college teams scoring in the 30s or in the low 40s. But once the jump shot took hold in the late 1930s, scoring went up immediately into the 50s. If you want to know the story of the one-handed jump shot, check out episode 6. In that episode, I go into detail about how the one-handed jump shot was popularized and how it changed basketball for the better. But today, we're going to talk about the dribble and how it was invented. We talked about it briefly in episode 20, but today we are going deeper into the story of how the dribble came into being. It wasn't always part of the game. When Dr. Naismith invented the game of basketball, he had not conceived of the dribble. His original 13 rules of the game stipulated that you could not run with the ball, like in American football or rugby. The ball was only supposed to move around the court by a pass. One player would pass to the next, who would then look to either pass it back or find a new teammate to pass it to. The intention was that you had to be stationary while you had the ball in your hands. There was even a rule that said that if you caught the ball while running, you had to either pass it again immediately 
or make an honest attempt to stop as soon as possible. In fact, here is how the rule is actually written under Naismith's original rule sheet. It happens to be rule number three out of a total of 13 rules. And it says, A player cannot run with the ball. The player must throw it from the spot on which he catches it. Allowance to be made for a man who catches the ball while running at a good speed if he tries to stop. Different players in those early days tried a variety of different ways of circumventing this rule. Some tried rolling the ball to themselves. Basically, if they had a defender on them, they would roll the ball a short distance like it was a bowling ball and then race their defender to pick it up again, but hopefully in a more advantageous position to either shoot it or pass it again. Or they would bounce the ball a short distance away and then race and catch the ball before it bounced a second time. Essentially, it was just one dribble before you had to grab the ball. It was really just a way to get away from the defender and give yourself enough time to make your next move. Or the funniest of all was that some guys would tap the ball into the air and keep tapping it up while they moved around the court. It looked like a one-man game of hot potato. They would run down the court with the ball only inches above their open hand as they would continuously tap it up. Eventually, a rule was made that when you tap the ball, the ball had to go above your head. This made the maneuver harder for players, which is what the intention of that rule was. People didn't like the tapping technique, so they needed to do something to reduce it. In one sense, it was like the Wild West out there. People were coming up with all kinds of ways to creatively move around the court with the ball without breaking the letter of the law. The original rules of basketball were 13 rules, typewritten on a single sheet of paper. If you look at the NBA rulebook today, it's like a large dictionary in size. And that's because over time, rules needed further and further clarification. New situations required new sets of rules to govern them. Loopholes needed to be closed to keep teams from exploiting it. When you get honest about it, the rule book is like a large legal document, and it's written like that. But now, it's time to actually get into the dribble, and we're going to do that right after this break. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome back, and now let's get into the origins of the modern dribble. By 1896 or 1897, sources aren't totally clear. Uh, this is just a few years after the game was invented, but teams were already being formed at the university level and they were playing against each other. And this is where Yale University comes in. Their coach spotted a loophole in the rule that would allow a player to move while continuously bouncing the ball. Unlike the other creative ways that players used to circumvent the rule about not carrying the ball, dribbling was a way to get around that rule, but still keeping the ball as secure as possible. Basically, it was the least risky way of all the methods out there for moving around the court with the ball. And it wasn't even thought of as dribbling at the time. It was viewed more like passing to yourself. So essentially, you were making a series of short bounce passes to yourself that allowed you to move around the court without violating the rule of not running while holding the ball. 
and they used it to great effectiveness. And there was no rule against double dribbling at the time either. That would come around in 1898, just a year or two later, when it was realized just how much of an advantage the offense had by being able to dribble, stop, and then dribble again in the same possession. And they could do this as much as they wanted. There was no rule against it. In some places, a rule was made that you could only bounce the ball once and then you had to either pass or shoot. Now you have to remember that back then there was no official governing body over basketball. Different leagues had different rules. There were always some people that tried to make their case by appealing to Dr. Naismith. After all, he invented the game. But despite whatever opinions he had about how the game was changing, even his words didn't carry that much weight because again, there was no one to enforce these rules. Different parts of the country were doing it differently. Standardization would come later. But the other tricky thing about dribbling back then was that the basketball had laces on it, like an American football. The laces made it so that you wanted to avoid bouncing the ball with the laces down because that would make contact with the floor and cause the ball to bounce off in some random direction. As much as possible, you wanted to bounce the ball with the laces on the side or even with the laces on the top so that you would get a more consistent bounce. Most leagues and organizations began to adopt the dribble as part of the regular playing of basketball, but not without some resistance. Even though the game was only eight or nine years old, there was already a new school versus old school feel to the environment. There were those that wanted to see the game develop and grow and move into new directions. They wanted to see the game changed in order to make the game better. But then there were others who wanted to keep the game exactly as Dr. Naismith had envisioned it. They didn't want to change it. They wanted to keep it true to Dr. Naismith's vision. They didn't want to change it at all. Thankfully, the dribble was adopted into the game as the new school won that battle. But the rules about dribbling still took a long time to become consistent. It wasn't until around 1929 that the dribbling rules were finally standardized and governed in pretty much the exact same way as we have today. You can dribble as much as you want, using only one hand at a time, and no double dribbling. Of course, the minutia of the rules on dribbling gets much more detailed than that, but these are the hallmarks of modern dribbling. And just like any other skill, like shooting or passing, there are some players who are simply better at it than others. It has become, in my opinion, the most fundamental skill in basketball. As a coach for seven and eight-year-old basketball players, the skill we work on the most in practice is dribbling. So I wanted to take a moment to go over some of the best dribblers in history. Now, I just want to clarify this isn't my list. This is a list that came up by a website called The Sportster who was trying to rank the top dribblers in the country. Now here is their top 10 and this comes from a few years back but of all the lists I looked at it was one of the few that went all the way back to before the 1980s. So here goes and we're gonna do this starting with number 10 and again this is their list but I think it's a pretty good one. Number 10 Jamal Crawford. Number nine, Earl the Pearl Monroe. Number eight, Kyrie Irving. Number seven, Chris Paul. Number six, 
Bob Cousy. Number five, Jason White Chocolate Williams. Number four, Isaiah Thomas, uh, the good one that played for the Pistons. Number three, Allen Iverson. Number two, Tim Hardaway. And at number one, Pistol Pete Maravich. I imagine that if we had to do that list today, we would have to include Steph Curry somewhere in there in the top 10, meaning that one of the players I just named would have to drop out of that list. But of course, these types of lists can be debated all day long, and I have no problem if your list is different from mine. Remember, this list wasn't even my list, but I think it's a good place to start for some friendly debate. And, and I think that's what makes basketball so much fun, is sometimes it's the debating and the talking about which player was the best at this, or who was the best pure shooter, who was the best shot blocker, who was the best on-ball defender. That's the real fun when I get together with friends who love basketball as much as I do. But this list that I've just given you only includes the players that played in the NBA. As a fan of basketball history, I have to bring up two other players. Marquez Haynes and Curly Neal, who both did their work with the Harlem Globetrotters. But man, could those guys dribble a basketball. It was absolutely phenomenal. In fact, many still consider Marquez Haynes to be the greatest dribbler of all time. I'll just leave that there. So, there you have it. That's how the dribble developed and became part of the game. And I'm so glad that the new school won back in the late 1890s that their idea of dribbling is now included in a standard part of the game. So, that's it for today. Join us next week when we profile a player who never even played in the NBA, but who Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said was the best player he ever played against. The name? Earl the Goat Manigault. And I'm going to share his story on our next episode. That's next time on Basketball History 101, part of the Sports History Network. If you like what you hear, please hit that subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our page on Facebook. It's called Basketball History 101 Podcast. There you will find shorter historical posts as well as comments and discussion starters on today's game. I'll also announce there when new episodes come out. I want to thank my producer and editor, Jacob Loiza. Join us each week as we continue to mine the history of basketball for more great stories from the past. And don't forget to check out SportsHistoryNetwork.com for more information on my podcast and the rest of the podcast in our network. Take care and see you soon. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. 
Willis Reed limping into the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.